0: Well, if you haven't been able to tell, for those of you who have been here the the last couple weeks, I've gone to great pains to get the point across that ethnic, unbelieving Israel is not an ally to Christianity in regards to the gospel. You have to get that last part. In regards to the gospel, after service last week, I found that this was particularly striking to some of you uh, hearing this. It was kind of striking to hear Israel isn't our uh, our ally in every single way. And the scripture says in regard to the gospel, they're actually enemies. So that was a little bit difficult, for I think, for some of you to hear that. But again, that, that language wasn't taken from any personal hostility that I have towards the Jews. I have, I have none. It was actually taken straight from scripture. In Romans 11:26, 26, Paul says, As regards the gospel, he's speaking about Israel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay. The reason I keep coming back to this is because many Christians ignore the first part of that verse and only hear the second part. They don't hear enemy part. They only hear beloved part. So, so they only see Israel as, as beloved and they don't see Israel as an enemy in any way, and especially not religiously. Okay, They, they see them as a, a very close ally religiously and spiritually. And this is what concerns me as it relates to the present war in Israel. Many Christians believe we have a religious obligation, saying we must, a religious obligation to stand with Israel currently. And that simply isn't the case biblically, and it's not historically or biblically defensible. But the nuance that I'm trying to give you, all, and I hope that you have nuance here and you're able to see this uh, clearly, is that you don't have to be religiously allied with someone to support or defend them politically. Okay? There's the nuance that we have to take away from this. What I'm trying to weed out is the belief that says because Israel is still somehow God's chosen people, we must defend and, defo- uh, defend and support them because the Bible says so. That's not the case. I'm trying to keep Christians from thinking that we must defend Israel as a, a holy land and therefore participate in a modern-day holy war because that's what we would be doing. If we we're supporting Israel religiously because that's holy ground, they're the holy people, and that's holy land, then we are participating in holy war. Okay? That cannot be the grounds for support for Israel as it relates to this present war. That's not the context. That's not what's going on. And I hope that that's not what we're doing. If we do happen to do this, we unintentionally participate in the racial discrimination that was eliminated in Christ. If we're saying the Jews are the chosen race, they're the chosen people, and we have to support them, then what we're doing is being a little bit racist. Yes, before Christ, there was a fairly strict racial prejudice towards uh, Jews among the people of God. But if we've learned anything from the New Testament, it's that God does not view humanity through the lens of race. That's not the way that God looks at humanity. He views humanity through the lens of faith. Faith is the way that God looks at people. It always has been. It always will be faith that is the instrument of our justification before God. What makes us right with God is not who our grandparents are, not who our parents are, not what race we are, not what color we are. It is our faith before God that makes us right before Him. And now that Christ has come, the object of our faith is crystal clear. It's not a, a vague, mysterious uh, belief like it was in the Old Testament where there was a mystery unrevealed. In the New Testament, the mystery revealed is that Jesus Christ is the one that we place our faith in. It is it's Christ Jesus that we find acceptance before the Father regardless of our ethnic background. Okay, So, if not on religious grounds, what grounds might we have to support the current nation of Israel as they are at war? That's what I want to answer today. That's what I want to look at. The two passages that we will look at to sum up uh, these two grounds by which we might, as Christians, come to aid the foreign uh, nation at war is Romans 13 and Luke 10. Romans 13 is that famous passage that uh, some of you are probably familiar with that talks about the civil authorities, governing authorities. Uh, Luke 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the first represents a political case for civil authorities to wield the sword, and the second is a humanitarian case out of Christian compassion. So let's turn to Romans 13 first. Romans 13. We're going to look at verse 1 through 10, and then directly after, hold your finger there, we're going to turn to Luke uh, 10 after that. Uh, Don't lose your place, because we're going to come back to both of these scriptures. Romans 13, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of law. Turn back to Luke 10. Luke 10, 25-37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Father, we thank You that Your Word gives us direction. We thank You that Your Holy Spirit has inspired these words to be canonized for us, put into our tradition, and handed down to us for thousands of years to hold in our own laps today to receive Your Word. And Lord, I pray that as we look at Your Word this morning, that we would not just look at them with fleshly eyes, but that we would have a spiritual reading where we're able to be inspired by the same Holy Spirit that inspired the words to be carried down through the ages and given to us, that you would inspire in our hearts obedience and um, a real love for your word to us. Help us to sit humbly at your feet today and to take to heart all that we find in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These two passages of Scripture are powerful. As I read them, there, I just kind of get chills thinking about how powerful the gospel is in these stories, and especially in the ways that they relate to what's going on presently in Israel. As it relates to uh, war and the wounded from battle, all those images that some of you are probably seeing online as they come through the news, it quickly becomes obvious that ethnic backgrounds and race have nothing to do with this discussion. Okay? This is about something more fundamental than this. This is about life. This is about the preciousness of life. This is about the image of God in uh, our lives and how we reflect who God is and what that means for us as humans. Okay? So, so let's now unpack these two passages and see why we might, as Christians, support present-day Israel. The first grounds by which we might do this is uh, on the role of the civil authority. Okay? In Romans 13, we have uh, the first grounds, and that would be a political grounds. Why we might support Israel. This is kind of the, the who lawfully may do this. Okay, this gives us the allowance to do this. And Romans 13, if you didn't know, through the ages, has become the permissive text for Christians to engage in war. Okay, the fourth-century theologian St. Augustine developed for us what is now called just war theory. Many of you are probably familiar with this. You've heard the terminology, just war theory. You might not have known that that's actually in your Christian tradition and and has been given to us in the Western tradition as it comes down through the ages because of one of the church fathers uh, largely commenting uh, on war in Romans 13 in his work, The City of God. So this is within our tradition. And ever since then, Christians have been much less shy to engage in war because we have inscribed within our own tradition a towering figure who approved for us at least the possibility of war being justified okay so it gives us kind of the allowance but but his theory did not come without biblical guardrails he wasn't reckless when he was commenting on this romans 13 gives us many sobering boundaries to the power of the state and these are some of the things that saint augustine saw as he's fleshing out the 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 role of the civil authorities as it relates to war and what what makes it justified well let me just comment on six things first for Romans thirteen, the, the civil authority is uh, to be submitted to because it's in an institution by God. We see this in verse one. Okay, Th- that God gave us this, and we must see this as uh, something from God. And second, this passage recognizes the God of providence—not just the providence of God, but the God of providence. When uh, whatever men you see in authority, you have to see that they've been placed there by God Himself, not by chance. But God put these people here. Third, if you resist the order of the government, verse 2 tells us this is in a real way resisting what God has appointed. So there's a real sense in which we're resisting what God has given to us. Fourth, if you are the one in authority, okay, so if you're in civil authority, if you hold a government role, you need to realize that God and why God has placed you there. Okay, Verse 6 makes it explicitly a position of ministry. That's what it says. It calls the one in authority a minister of God. So the proper reason for authority, then, is to be an approver of what is good and a terror to bad conduct as a servant of God. We see this in verse 3 and 4. Fifth, the power of the sword, which we re- reread in our Christian tradition reads as the death penalty, has been given to the state as an avenger to enforce Penalties for wrongdoing. This is pretty clear in verse 4. When it talks about the sword, it's talking about death. Okay, You don't just poke people with a sword, and, and that's the penalty. It's talking about death. And sixth, my least favorite, your taxes are the funding source for all of this. And that's precisely where you come into all of this, as tax-paying citizens. This passage says that paying taxes to the governing authorities is a matter of conscience. Okay, And you don't just do it... Uh, because God tells you to, but also because they have the power of the sword. It says you must do it to be in subjection to them. It doesn't say to pay your taxes if you like their policies and you uh, you are a friend of their this preferred administration or that preferred administration. It simply says, unfortunately, you must pay your taxes, period. Okay, Pay them to whom they are paid. And Jesus backs this up as well. When people come to Jesus and say, do we have to pay our taxes? He says... Yeah, we, we do. Um, he, he, he makes a, a really cool thing happen where we uh, get a tax out of the, the fish's mouth. I know that's probably not happened for you, unfortunately. But he still says one way or another, you have to pay your taxes. Okay. But, but here is where the beauty of living in a democratic republic is very free. Okay? You are the ones who hold these authorities to this standard of virtue that makes them realize that they are ministers of God, not just public servants. Okay? You have power, and that's the beauty of the, the country that we live in is that you hold them accountable as the church to speak to them what they should be doing and what virtue is. So while it's clear that the church does not wield the power of the sword, right? we don't do that. We, we might excommunicate uh, people, but we don't execute people. Okay? That, that's, that's clear. I don't know any church that believes that. We don't ex- execute people, but uh, the, the government can do that. So while it's clear that the church does not wield the power of the sword, this is a a different category than the church, the civil magistrate does. Okay, They are allowed to do that. Uh, But that does not mean then that the church um, is not the prophetic voice to every government to bow the knee to Christ and obey his law that's higher than any law that they propose. Okay, So we kind of hold each other accountable. That's the way that it's supposed to work, and that's the way our country is really – uh, obeyed God's word, really, uh, as it's been given to us. As we speak to the government and say, "This is virtue. This is God's law. Do that." Okay, you hold them accountable. And, and of course, the law that we're speaking to them isn't just the Ten Commandments. Yes, we post that outside of our our courthouses, but what we're really getting at as Christians is we should see that that law is fulfilled in love. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. The the law of love fulfills the law of the Ten Commandments. And what this ultimately means, and our forefathers knew this, was that there was to be a separation of church and state. But that does not mean that the state isn't still ultimately accountable to God. It is. We believe that. Okay? That is why it's not crossing any boundaries for me now to preach to you today about what the church and the state should and shouldn't be doing because that's the, the, the role of the church. We prophetically speak to this even though that's not our lane necessarily to carry it out. Okay, because you hold them accountable is why we believe that we can have this conversation today. So all the more reason as taxpaying citizens and as church members, all the more reason for you to have a biblical understanding of what our nation is currently dealing with. You need to understand who you are as a church member. You need to understand who you are as a, a citizen of the nation that we live in. And we need to realize that we are stepping into a complex situation. We as an American people are trying to figure out what we think about Israel presently. And rightly so, because we're the ones funding all the stuff that's happening, all the decisions that are being made. We actually do have a say uh, as voting citizens and as uh, citizens of the United States who vote the people in that spend this. We have a say in this, and we need to have an opinion about it. We need to think about what we are doing as a nation. Now, if you didn't know, just some little background facts of what's uh, happening and has happened as it relates to Israel. Since Since its beginning, Israel which was established in 1948, it started in 1946 when we started giving money to them. Since 1946, the state of Israel has received around $318 billion of U.S. aid as of 2022. $318 billion. That's a lot of money. This is by far more than any other foreign nation in the world. The nearest, the closest is Vietnam at only $184 billion. That's slightly more than half. So I say that just simply to show that Israel has obviously been supported historically by the United States. We we as a people support them. But presently, we are at a point where as I'm gearing up to travel for work, I'm getting notifications on my phone that uh, travel might be delayed because there are pro-Palestinian uh, protesters that could stop my flight. Okay. This is the reality that we're working in right now. This is just where we are at. I know it seems outlandish and something you only read on the news, but that's what I'm as an individual worker, Christian citizen dealing with. It's complex. It's something that we should have an opinion about. Okay. So that's why I'm bringing all this up to talk about the complexity of it and bring it all together. Cause that's the world you live in, Christian. That's the, the reality. We live in a complex world that has complex things going on. As the world looks to you, church, how do you now take all of what you know biblically and take every thought captive, uh, take every argument and lofty opinion and hold that to the obedience of Christ? That's what we're called to do. That's what I've been saying all through this is that we have to have nuance as Christians to be able to say, this is what the Bible says. This is how we think about this as Christians. And that's what I'm trying to help you do so we don't cross any boundaries to where we end up making mistakes, saying, like, the Bible says you have to support Israel without having nothing to support that. Okay, So that's why I'm trying to move forward and help nuance for you all. So I went to Romans 13 because it's a passage that clearly shows us that the government has a right to defend its people. That's, that's just something we as Christians should believe, and that's what the Bible says. The power of the sword isn't just capital punishment of its own wrongdoers, though. The sword is a weapon of war. Okay, that's, that's what the sword is. You use it for uh, going to war, and it's meant for a defense. It's meant for punishing those who would disrupt the good. And I'm particularly interested in verse 3, where it says that rulers, if you want to look in Romans 13, look at verse th- 3 with me. It says that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Okay? The reverse of this would mean that the government is against those who are a terror to good. Those who are a terror to good are called what? Terrorists. Right. That's, that's what a terrorist is. A terrorist is a person who uses unlawful violence and intimidation, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. We're talking about what's happening in Israel right here in Romans 13. We're talking about terrorists. This is what we're dealing with in Israel. With all political agendas aside, the atrocities that began this conflict would certainly meet that criterion for terrorism. Okay? So whether Israel believes the New Testament teaching on just war theory or not, it doesn't even matter. They are within the bounds of biblical teaching on the role of civil authorities as they defend themselves by using the power of the sword. And as hard as that might be for some of us uh, to realize that it's our tax dollars that they are largely using to defend themselves, this too is within the boundaries of the civil magistrates. They are allowed to do this. Though Israel is not our nation— and we are citizens of another nation. Our elected officials have chosen to ally with the nation of Israel. And in that political alliance, we are bound to support them unless they give us reason otherwise. Okay, that's just the context of where we're at. That's where we're at. we at. at. We allied with them, the people that we voted in, and our history, we have allied with them. And we are bound to support them. So to sum up the political grounds by which we might, as Christians, support the nation of Israel as they are at war is because we believe in the power of the state uh, to defend itself against terrorists and that it is funded even by the tax dollars of the citizens. Israel has a right of defense, and the United States has the right to aid them as an ally. But someone will say, yes, but why do my tax dollars have to fund this? Okay, This is where... um, I and maybe some of the other libertarian thinking in the room say, but that's not my problem. Okay, that's that's out there. That's that's foreign stuff. That's not my own defense. They're not defending me, they're defending someone else. And I have a lot of sympathy with that because Romans 13 does not command us to pay taxes to foreign governments, does it? It tells us to submit to our own government, and we pay taxes to them to defend us as our civil servants. But this is why I also decided to look at the parable of the good Samaritan. Romans 13 serves as the who lawfully may text for us, but Luke 10 serves as the why motive behind why someone might engage in support of a foreign state. So the second grounds is uh, not a political one, but a humanitarian. one. This is an argument from Christian compassion. This is the the, the why motive behind what we might do in support of Israel. And I, I personally love the way that this passage speaks to my own heart. As it relates to the current conflict in Israel, my mind, to my own discredit, often works in theological grids that don't factor in mercy and compassion. That's unfortunately the way that I think a lot of times. Law makes sense to me. I understand law. I understand justice. Grace doesn't always make sense with me, and, that, and that's because it isn't deserved. Okay? Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. But the Good Samaritan speaks to, speaks to that part of me that would want to use the fact that Israel does not believe to be an excuse for not aiding them. The, the Good Samaritan reminds us that the gospel takes justice further than what we could imagine. Okay? It's not just justice. It's justice and some. Justice would say that we don't owe anyone anything. The gospel says true except for love. That's what the gospel says. And this is precisely where our reading in Romans 13 ended, didn't it? Romans 13 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If you turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, uh, you will find that Jesus is dealing with a man who is a lawyer, it says in verse 25. This is a man that, to his own discredit, thinks too much about the law and not enough about grace. You might see him in yourself sometimes and hate it. But this is who that passage speaks to so strongly. It is to that part of you that stays hidden until the word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit and makes you say, that's not who I want to be. I repent of that. That's that's not who I am. You see, this lawyer has his theology right on paper, but in practice he fails. He trips all over himself. He asks Jesus a question, and pretty much as always, Jesus responds with a question. That just seems to be his tactic. Someone asks him something, and he's like, let me ask you something. Uh, that, That just seems to be the way that Jesus does this. But what you'll find is that the lawyer tells Jesus the summary of the whole law as Jesus asks him, what does the law say? He says in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is what the lawyer tells Jesus, and this is the correct answer, Jesus says. Do this, and you shall live. But look with me at verse 29. He gets the law right, but look at verse 29. But he, it's talking about the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And this is where the motive is revealed. The law was sorted out, and Jesus even said that the lawyer was correct. Okay, But in further questioning, we see his motive is revealed. His motive was that he wanted to justify himself. Let's think about that for a second. He wanted to justify himself. Another way that we could say this Uh, was that he wanted to excuse himself from the obligation to love. He he wanted to be able to sidestep that and say, I know what it says, uh, but I don't think that applies to me. And and in this example, Jesus doesn't miss the opportunity to preach to this lawyer's heart. He goes right after the lawyer's heart. He he goes after his religious prejudice. You see, this lawyer felt excused uh, from loving his enemies from loving people not like him. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have used this parable. That's why Jesus used this parable. It's a teaching mechanism to show something to this lawyer about his own heart. So in order to give the gospel to this man, he preaches about this hypothetical Jew who is on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho who was cared for by a Samaritan who is an enemy. Now this story, it breaks down all the walls of hostility towards race and religion. It didn't matter that the Samaritan didn't believe the same way as the Jew who was jumped by terrorists. The Samaritan acted in Christ-like compassion, as it says in verse 33. He had compassion on him. When all the allies of the Jewish man abandoned him, the Jewish Levite, the the, the Jewish priests, the the people of his own, they abandoned him. But the half-bred Samaritan was there. He was there to see the image of God in him, regardless of his background. And that's why Jesus uses this example for this man. This church is the humanitarian case for involvement. It is Christian compassion that propels us to see even our enemies as our neighbors, no matter who they are. And this is what makes it easier to maintain a biblical and Christian perspective on this. Yes, Romans 11 says Israel, as regards the go- or as regards the gospel, are our enemies, but they are also beloved in regards to election, it says. Yes, Israel may categorically oppose our Christ now, but how else will they understand the love of Christ unless we take that love to them? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, Romans 10 says. Right before this chapter on Romans 11, Paul says we must bring it to them. How are they going to know unless we show them the love? And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the compassion came not through sentimental words, it came through action came through actually doing something. Uh, the, the, the Samaritan didn't uh, pass by and say uh, uh, thoughts and prayers or hop on his Facebook wall and say thoughts and prayers and probably not even think or pray about the person. That wasn't what he did. He had real action, and he took uh, the gospel all the way down to his, his fingertips. He was doing what God called him to do. He was loving this person. He sacrificed is what he did. It's a sacrificial kind of love that we see from this good Samaritan in this passage. He sacrificed his own time, we see in this. He's on his way from Jericho going this way, and the other man's uh, from Jerusalem going to Jericho, and they're passing by. So he's, he's got something he's got to do. He's on his way to do something, so he's sacrificing his time. It stops for this Jew. He's sacrificing his resources. It says that he gives him oil and wine. It says he puts him on his animals. So he's walking now, and he's putting this enemy of his on his animal to take him back to care for him. His finances are sacrificed. It says he gives him two days' wage. That's what a denarius is. It's a whole day's wage. So think about working two full days for free for someone that's your enemy. And then after he, he gives him the two days' wage, he writes a blank check for as much as, as needed for this man to recover. He says, take care of this man, whatever it costs. I want you to take care of him, and I will pay for that. I'll come back and I'll I'll shore up the accounts. That's what I want you to do for this man who is not even my friend. He's my neighbor. He might even be my enemy. And another interesting thing about this passage is that it emphasizes the geographical distance uh, of our neighbor. Not only did the Jew and Samaritan not live uh, next to each other, uh, but only pass by on the road, the Samaritan even left after ensuring the Jew is okay and left an open account for aid from afar. Think about that, how it relates to all that's going on as we're aiding people from afar. What this emphatically tells us is that our neighbor doesn't look like us. Our neighbor does not look like us. Our neighbor doesn't believe like us. Our neighbor doesn't live by us and probably won't be around us for very long, but nevertheless, our neighbor is there because of providential circumstances, and God has brought us to this person for a reason. And this is probably why Jesus kind of tongue-in-cheek says in verse 31, by chance this Jew is passing by. who could have given something to him, but he didn't. He had an opportunity to by chance. It's not Jesus saying, uh, I just want to show you that I believe in fatalism. I believe in uh, uh, fate and all that out there and chance. No, he's saying this providentially happened and you blew it is what he's saying about the Jew who passed on by and the other Levite that passed on by. But by chance, it happened to be that the enemy was the person who was going to stop and show Christ-like compassion, someone who was radically different from what this person looked like. That person was the one that showed Christ love the most. And that is what the lawyer needed to hear. As we close, church, I want you to see the unifying theme between these two passages is love for neighbor. Okay, this is where they both meet up. Both help us to see things through a gospel-centered view instead of a law-centered view. Law-centeredness says that we do not owe anyone anything. The gospel says, except for love. Except for love. The lawyer says, I understand the law, but I know the loopholes. Who is my neighbor? That's that's kind of the gray area, right? I use that as my excuse. I know the law so well that I'll throw out that extra question out there and show you that I, I know how to work around the system. Or I don't have to do anything. I'm I'm excused from doing anything. That's the gray area that the lawyer loves. And the law says you must do this, but the gospel is never out of obligation. If it would, again, it would cease to be grace because grace is unobliged favor. Unfortunately, this is what many Christians are actually looking for when they consider the present question of Israel. Do we have a Christian obligation? That's what so many Christians are thinking around. Right? Do we have to do this? Do we have a Christian obligation to do this? Now, Certain Christians say we must get involved because they're God's people. Other Christians say we must not get involved because they're not God's people. Okay? That's what these two sides tend to be saying. But both of these views use lawyer logic to justify themselves. I don't have to or I do have to. And both of these views are self centered it 's about whether or not they are keeping their perceived law they're not thinking about anyone else other than themselves and being right with god gospel centeredness focuses on loving our neighbor loving our neighbor as ourselves. It says not what must I do, but what can I do that I would want done to me that's the radical news of the gospel that shows us it's not about me it's not about what I want it's about what Christ would do and what Christ has done. How do I bring all thinking into that kind of thinking? Gospel-centered thinking. Christ-centered thinking. And what we all want is, and what we all need really, is compassion. That's what we want. When we come to this question, uh, what is it that I would want done to me? It's compassion. It's, it's love. Okay? We want someone who sees through our ethnic backgrounds, that doesn't care who we are born, what race we are, what color we are. We want someone that sees through our wrong beliefs. Okay? We want to see someone who sees through our alienation, through our wrongdoing, through our woundedness, through our our brokenness, through all of our mess, and simply loves us for love's sake, not what they can get out of it, not what makes them right. Okay? And Christian, you know this love, don't you? This is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And, and the way that you show this love to others is by loving them like you've been loved by Christ. Applying That principle to all of life is how we live like Christians. That's how we start to think Christianly. So as we think about this, all that we've been talking about with Israel, I know it's been complex. I know it's kind of seemed a little bit scattered. and I know I haven't given you all the answers that you may have wanted in this short series, but at least now I've given you a grid through which you can think through these complex issues. There are socio-political complexities, there are religious complexities, there's racial and cultural complexities, but at the end of the day, those all take a backseat to what we might as Christians, uh, or why we might as Christians support Israel. We do it because Jesus speaks mercy to the lawyer. We do it because Jesus speaks mercy to the lawyer in us, in our hearts, and he says, go and do likewise to the lawyer. And he says the same thing to us. When we find that place in us that starts to think like the lawyer, that wants to justify ourselves to think is this right or wrong based upon the law and not based upon Christian thinking, that's what Jesus is after in all of this. And that's the main thing that I really want you to take away from this. Think Christianly about your questions like that. Think gospel-centeredly. Think Christocentrically through all of your life and practice. That will help you to have the nuance that we need as Christians in such a complex world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I don't have all the answers, but we thank you that you do and that we can come to you who is all wise, that knows all things, and most importantly, that loves us. We thank you that we come to one who recognizes uh, that we are different um, than you even. And that's an amazing thing in and of itself, that you love us when we weren't like you. And you call us to be more like you through your gospel. We thank you that You actually count us as your son Jesus when we place our faith in him so that we do have a real unity that is counted to us. And Lord, we pray that more and more that we wouldn't just be counted as like you, but that we, through our transformation of love taking place in our hearts, that we actually would become actually like you, not just counted that way. Work in our hearts today, Lord. I pray that you would uh, uh, help us to apply all that we've learned uh, in the scriptures that we've been looking at. I pray that you would help us to do as your word calls us to, to take every thought captive and think Christianly. Think like your son Jesus would about every single issue that we encounter in life. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's continue to worship this morning by standing and singing together because, sorry, love lifted me. You'll find this on hymn number 519, Love Lifted Me. Connect this to what we've just learned about the love of Christ to us and how that helps us to live and how it shows us that we might be lifted by the love of Christ. Hymn number 519, please stand with me as we sing together.